How's Ketchikan? The sun is shining, man. Yeah. And there's like, there's solid balls of sunshine on the old balls. magic phone. Well, you know, little little orbs. What? It's <laughs> this big thing in the sky called the sun, man. Yeah, but wh- where are these balls? They're uh, on my iPhone as symbols oh, oh, for the oh, sun. These are strange weather, very amateurish weather symbols, not like an aviation yes. chart that yes, I'm used to. It's, it's a circle with like little uh, rays face. coming around. Right. Happy face. Right. And I haven't seen that literally. It has been weeks. And right. So we get a week of this. But uh, so tell me, how many days of blue sky sunshine? I've been to Ketchikan where it's seventy degrees and it's hot, and you go and you go swimming. I've done that in Ketchikan. Yeah, but how people, many days do you think you get of blue sky, no clouds? Would that be a well, week's worth a year? It depends upon the year. This of last course. year has been very, very rainy. And as people have said, if you get off the boat on one of those rare beautiful sunny days and you walk around this town you go wow this is paradise man this is so cool but but you know i I gotta say uh the pluvial lifestyle you know is it suits me but there is a point right so back to my question how many days you reckon just off the top of your head you'd think you'd get blue sky days in ketchikan i think uh maybe last year 2020 i would say we're lucky if we get a uh a quarter of a year you know so uh what 90 days of blue well, sky I, no okay okay no 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 help me do that okay. this is not my how skill about this? How 365 about 40, days how about 14 how about maybe, days how about maybe 20 30 days 30 okay. days let's of, say of a blue one sky month right of blue sky all right according to google catch a can is 100 days of sunshine <laughs> go figure and then if the sun comes out, we have all these variations of rain. Sure. You know, I yeah. did a drawing once called 100 Names for Rain. And there's this the heavy rains, the misty rain, you know, well, the torrential. Well, is, is that 100 Names based on Native American language or based on just world world descriptions of rain? Or your own well, personal nightmare? So we catch a canners have 100 Names for Rain. Right. What's going on in your world, man? Well, my world is having, uh, we had a strange heat wave, so we had 90 degree temperatures. This is being recorded in January. I think this will probably go out in February or March. I don't know when, but uh, yeah, a week of 90 degree temperatures. And today, the 50 to 70 mile an hour winds what? are yeah are going ballistic. I was afraid of recording. They seem to have died down now, so you won't hear them in the background. Uh, And, of course, that means major fire season and fire warnings. There are planned power outages. You know, it's funny. These huge and largest fires of California were caused by the electric company. Most of them have been caused by the electric company uh, poles sorting out and and catching the the land on fire. So uh, they Mm. are doing power outages as preemptive. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. as preemptive for, for the fire danger, yeah. Well, it's kind of cool to know that you Californians have a little reminder every now and then that Mother Nature bats last, right? You know, that Mother Nature is really in control, man. Yeah, that's what I love about living in Alaska is you truly are at the mercy of Mother Nature. And it, it humbles you, I think, as a human being. And also creates a sense of community 
Yeah, it does. And when you have a uh, giant hemlock fall on your little house in the hill, that's a reminder. Oh, no. Are you still complaining about the no damage from the tree? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, I'm a lightweight. So um, real quick before we get into our guest uh, today, um, I I read the strangest article about a V-shaped slit. Now, you know what a cloaca is. Yeah, I do. It's uh, the... Opening on a on a, a genital opening or also anal opening on a creature. Well, basically, uh, reptiles and birds have this thing, and I think some and fish too. It's one opening that uh, ex, uh, expels urine, feces, and it's also for sexual reproduction. So the cloaca is a, a one one hole fits all. So it's it's both functions in one hole. Three apparently three functions, and again. Oh, okay. I am not a biologist. Oh, right, I'm not right, an expert. Duh. Yeah, I'm not an expert. But they just found huh. that there is a uh, Psittacosaurus, which is this really cool looking bipedal. What do you do? What? You're raising your finger. What? Psittacosaurus. Oh. <laughs> I think we had, we had agreed early on in a previous show that it was Psittacosaurus. Okay. Well, it's spelled Psittacosaurus, a... kind of. But on the Tom K episode, if you'll remember, dear sir, I don't we remember actually went these through things. this. Cetacosaurus, and okay. we went back and forth. It's Describe what it looks like, and then I'll tell you about its uh, cloaca. Uh, Cetacosaurus looks sort of like uh, Triceratops. It's a ceratopsian relative. Uh, it's got kind of a beak, and it's... Uh, four legs. Four kinda... legs. Four legs. Looks kind of like a Triceratops wannabe. It's going to, you know, that's right. it is related to them, it's, which later has the three horns. So it's Smaller a Ceratopsian, right? Yeah, about five, six feet long. Right. And so it turns out their cloaca is not round shaped. It's V-shaped. It's got a slit that's shaped like a V. Huh. Yeah. And and this has never been preserved in any dinosaur. This never been is- preserved in any dinosaur. So they have uh, this skeleton in this Lagerstatten. And so the crazy bit is that they have no idea. Well, they can, they can surmise, but they've never seen this shape. And so why? So I guess that would that would mean... Uh, I don't mean to be gross here, but their poo would come out like a Lego factory, wouldn't it? Like, <laughs> like one of those, a Play-Doh factory. <laughs> yeah, and remember those Play-Doh factories as a kid? You could have oh, oh, right. You could have all those shapes, and you push, press the thing, and it squeezes out in a, in an L shape or a curly right. Q, whatever. Right, so right. basically, uh, their poo would come out like a Play-Doh factory in a V shape. Well, you know, you shared this article with me moments before uh, we did this podcast, and I, I gave it a glance, and there are some strange things. They say that this is unlike any other uh, reptile group, but it's kind of similar to uh, crocodiles. But this is the first time the the naughty bits, as it right. were, have been preserved right. in a dinosaur. And I think this is the Chinese dinosaur that they're studying in Germany, perhaps? Something like or that. Is it, something, like yeah, that. something like that. China has also, the, the most amazing preservation. And there's such beautiful preservation on this that they actually know that there's intense pigment around this cloaca, which makes it it's like they it would be oh, a different so color. so it would be kind of like a sexual attraction. So it would be used as an attraction right, kind right. of thing. Wow. So sort of like, cool. uh, you know, whatever. Would I wear that really nice hat yeah. or something? That, anyways, that's... But the, the other weird thing is when you only have one specimen, those things you see are only to that individual. What if this was... What if this individual that that happened to be preserved is the only one of its kind in the history of life on this planet? And 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 so you know what I'm saying. So like it was the only one with the colored. Uh, yeah, but you know what is wild to think about, and maybe we should have a guest on sometime to talk about how how did these 
gigantic dinosaurs do, do it, it. Do it, yeah. You know? Didn't one of our previous guests, I think it was... Um, I'm not going to say his name because he's our season two finale and it's really worth the wait. He is the heavyweight of paleontologists on planet Earth. Didn't he show kind of a strange drawing of how two massive sauropods would, or was it two T-Rexes kind of uh, in the position of oh, having sexual reproduction? It was, I think we were talking about the Allosaurus with him and uh, that uh, strange bone, the Ischium. Uh, oh, the, right. Yeah, that, that's that, right. That that's right. But, you know, there actually is a lot of uh, internet speculation on dinosaur yeah, sex. And there are I'll drawings bet. out there. But, uh, but maybe we should go uh, find an expert on that sometime. Okay. Hey. Now, um... You're always correcting me, and uh, for all my life, uh, when we're talking about <laughs> our next guest, who is, uh, he studies Ice Age fossils of the Pleistocene. And then uh, you tell me it's called? I just can't, yeah, I cannot what abide it? that. It's not Pleistocene. In fact, Dave, the entire world, the English-speaking world, whatever, I think even my, our, our just overseas correct friends. correct me. Shut up and correct Pleistocene. me. Pleistocene. Pleistocene. Okay. Pleistocene. Pleistocene. And, and I used to call it the Miocene, but it's the Miocene. Miocene. And I think I realized why I'm making this mistake is I'm looking at the I and, and making it a Spanish E sound. Oh, okay. That's what I'm doing wrong there. So, so it's the Pleistocene, which starts from 11,000 years ago to 1.8 million years ago and that is the time frame of our next guest and he is amazing up in the yukon in the mighty yukon way just north yeah. of me here and i I'm so excited i i was lucky enough to drive through the yukon remember we could drive into other countries man and uh so i toured through it and I met the man and uh, had a great time with yeah, him. Yeah, he's in Whitehorse, Yukon, which is probably yes. about 700 miles from you as the crow flies. Yeah, it's actually not, it's not that far. All that far but, uh, but you can't get to it <laughs> by car. <laughs> by, yeah, I have to go up to take a ferry and then drive. I'm on an island. But All right, well, let's uh, call him up and uh, start this because uh, I'm excited uh, to talk to Grant Zazula, who is paleontologist of the Yukon. That's right, Yukon paleontologist. There's not a lot of them, so uh, that's that's his title. So let's call him, man. Hey, David Strassman, meet Grant Zazula, Yukon paleontologist. <laughs> hey, Hello. Grant. Hey, it Dave. is so good to see you again, man. This is my buddy Dave. He's a ventriloquist. He's kind of a big deal in, you know, other places in the but world. But I am one thing that I'm going to ask you, Grant. Are you also a paleo nerd, and why? Well, I guess this officially makes me a paleo nerd. I was I was telling my family this morning as I was having coffee, walking out the door, that I'm doing this paleo <laughs> nerd podcast, and it, you know, it just seemed perfect because they all just think I'm a nerd at all things, anyway. So, <laughs> you know, I guess we is there t-shirts? You have paleo nerd t-shirts? Maybe I should get a tattoo of a paleo nerd. They're they're coming. We're working on the shirts. I know a t-shirt guy that can help you out here, but. Uh... So they are coming. Grant, thanks so much. You know, I, I uh, interviewed you. I hung out with you for an afternoon way back. I mean, it's coming up in almost 
almost 10 years now. <laughs> 10 years. But uh, I came rolling through Whitehorse, and you're not that far from me, but you're like two time zones away from us, which is crazy. For me to get to Ketchikan, it'd be easier to fly to Moscow, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, it's pretty convoluted. So you, your family's convinced you are a nerd. Were you a paleo obsessed kid? You know, I was an I was a kid who just loved old things, and I grew up around a farming family. My grandparents were were farmers. They were recent, you know, immigrants to Canada from Ukraine, from Eastern Europe, and they had all these old oh, things wow. like farming implements. I and was they just going to say that. Well, little, yeah, you know, all little, the stuff you'd find around a farm, like old plows you know, and wagon wheels. Yeah, scythes. Like my grandmother had a, a scythe hand site for cutting wow. wheat that she brought from the old wow. country so i was always kind of love that connection to the old stuff and and i love old rock and roll you know i've been lamenting about <laughs> phil specter the last few days i know that's a bit of a controversial topic but man, i saw that you were lamenting his but yes he was a mad genius but this you you grew up in alberta Right. Yeah, in Alberta. Yeah. And, you know, in high school, I was a total science nerd, but I was also a bit of a troublemaker. So uh, uh, I grew up I grew up in, in Edmonton and um, and uh, when it was in high school, maybe it was in grade 12 where we had to do some sort of volunteer thing. And I I chose the Provincial Museum of Alberta and uh, I, uh, I went over there and applied to become a volunteer in high school. And I was cataloging artifacts fossils i was doing all kinds of that stuff in the basement down there at the museum of uh, at the royal alberta museum now and it just kind of caught me i, I love that stuff and then i just sort of followed that path through university i started off in archaeology i i was really into Whoa. archaeology and archaeology was a big program at anthropology at the university of, of alberta and then but north um, american native archaeology yeah, absolutely. You know, I had these I had these professors, people like uh, Raymond LeBlanc, who's an archaeologist, and Charlie Schwager, who's a paleo paleo guy, and they were telling me these wild stories about going up to Old Crow in the 1960s and spending time in the High Arctic in the 70s, and I was just blown away by these stories of adventure on the land and and the the interaction with archaeology and First Nations people in Canada. I just you know, I just kind of thought that was wild, and I just loved it. And I and I also became kind of obsessed with the idea of the peopling of the Americas, because you know, as a student, just mm. thinking about this was a continent where there was nobody living here, no people living here. Then all of a sudden, right. sometime near the end of the Ice Age, man, like people show up, and everything changes. And I think uh, to me, it was such a wild thing. I, I loved it from an archaeological perspective. And then I kind of, you know, got ventured off down in a different direction in paleo. But, it, you know, I think that one of the things about the north is that it's all kind of connected. You know, the land, the people, the the, the fossils, the rocks, you kind of have to do a yeah. bit of all of that stuff. So, yeah, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. <laughs> you are a nerd, man. And what a what a place that you've ended up in. The Yukon is is truly a magical mystical sort of land like you fall in love with the landscape absolutely it's the boreal forests and the tundra and the rarefied air and the amazing summers and the amazing winters and you know what there's something for me something primal about it i you feel like it's in our ancient dna memory somehow and absolutely it really is uh, an amazing place tell us about whitehorse that's the highest in latitude town before the chukchi sea right Although the Beaufort Sea Beaufort is above sea, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So explain what Whitehorse is. Well, Yukon's a, a, it's an interesting place. You know, it's connected. We're, Whitehorse is connected to Alaska, of course, from the on the Alaska Highway. So 
you can start off in northern British Columbia and Canada and drive all the way through Yukon and get yourself to Fairbanks, Alaska. And Whitehorse is a it's a it's a town of about thirty five thousand people. You know we're we're low latitude. Like in Yukon, you have to go much further north before you start getting further. You know above into above tree line and. You know, the most northerly community in Yukon is called Old Crow, and it's a village of 250 people, and that's 67 or 8 degrees north. We're, we're at about 61 degrees in Whitehorse. So, you okay. know, it's a town in the middle of the forest. It's kind of this weird mix of government workers and hippies and other people from down mm. south who don't belong, kind of like Ketchikan, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was going to say, uh, it's my town. <laughs> what latitude does the boreal forest end and the tundra begin? Where's the tree line in, in the Arctic? Well, in North Yukon, um, you'd probably have to go fair, almost a 69 degrees, I think, is about where the tree line starts to fade into the, the tundra. And once you get to the kind of the Arctic coastal plain, off into the Beaufort Sea, off the Beaufort Shelf, it's it's treeless up there, but for the most part, uh, most of Yukon is within the boreal forest, and so we have you know typical boreal forest stuff. You know from from Alaska, we got moose, uh, moose everywhere, and some caribou, and and lots of lots of spruce trees, a few birch trees, a few pine trees, and and beautiful clean air, and lots of rivers and in in, in in lakes. So yeah, it's a good place. Far, far away, yeah, far away. So Grant, you got your PhD at uh, Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and you were hired like right out of college. <laughs> and as the Yukon paleontologist, is what kind of job is a Yukon paleontologist do? Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes feel a little bit like an imposter because you know, I, like you said, I got hired with this job right out of school and. To be honest with you, when I got hired, I wasn't much of a paleontologist. I was really coming from a background of oh, archaeology right. and paleoecology. Oh. Once I got that bug of the North and that idea of the Pleistocene and peopling the Americas, um, my uh, my master's thesis work was actually on fossil pollen. So I was studying oh, right. plant remains and stuff like that, trying to reconstruct ecosystems, and then ended up at Simon Fraser. And I ended up, my PhD was on... Uh, Pleistocene Arctic ground squirrels and looking at how <laughs> Arctic ground squirrels lived in the past and especially they uh, they collected these uh, so in the in the summertime you know squirrels in the north they run around collecting grass and seeds and they store them underground and we started to find out in the Klondike goldfields in this mining district uh, near Dawson City in the in the permafrost these frozen preserved nests of Arctic ground squirrels from the Pleistocene so forty thousand year old nests full of plant remains so that's what I studied for my PhD and I using that information about squirrel nests and plants in squirrel nests to reconstruct these middens. Yeah. They're called middens, right? Yeah, we call them middens. Yeah, right. And it is basically they gather all the plants and and twigs and sticks and leaves to make a. Is it for just for, for warmth? Well, for for a couple things, they they store they store grassy nests for bedding. You know, just for bedding within their hibernation chamber. But also male Arctic ground squirrels, um, and that's some of the work that came out of University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, Brian Barnes and that crew uh, in Fairbanks. They, they were doing work on Arctic ground squirrels, and I really tied into what they were doing because they realized it was only male ground squirrels that go out and store seeds for and, and, and fruits. Wow. They store them, and then they keep them in their hibernation chamber, and then they wake up in the spring. And then they eat all that, all that little seeds and fruits, and then to gain body mass for for reproduction. Dur during the Pleistocene, they were obviously doing this, and some of them never lived through the winter, so they're 
permafrost preserved middens those nests got preserved so that's what i studied for my phd wow. yeah it was amazing so that's, you know that's already ground squirrels that sounds pretty rock and roll man <laughs> <laughs> you know people love like saber-toothed cats and woolly mammoths you know yeah, I know. yeah I'm, I'm a so... really cool paleo nerd studying <laughs> arctic ground squirrels you're like not cool you uh you met your wife uh at simon fraser i think right yeah she's an she's an archaeologist you know and i think it was really my experience working in the yukon with indigenous communities during my thesis work and working with the gold miners out in dawson city you know having this backdrop and kind of i really came from a, a background of like old school quaternary science like we studied a bit of paleoecology a bit of paleontology a bit of archaeology some geology i kind of got a mix and throw some field work in there and that's kind of was my background so i yeah i defended my phd at simon fraser and the guy that was working in the job that i had at yukon government the paleontology program he just up, up in arms quit one day and people were <laughs> oh. like, like what and i was out in the field that, that summer and i was just about to defend my phd and i thought well hey maybe i should just apply for this job i never really figured i wanted a job i was going to carry on and do a postdoc and be a kid for a wow. while but then this job thing came up and uh, Victoria, my, my soon-to-be wife, and I looked at each other and thought, you know, maybe this is time to settle down and we'll move up to Whitehorse. And that's what we did. So what year was that that you got hired? 2006, the winter of 2006. Wow, I drove okay. the Alcan Highway all by myself from Edmonton. And Exciting. So you'd already been going up there. and But yeah. I'm just curious, what did the squirrels tell you? That humans are wasteful and will one day ruin this beautiful planet in their your phd what you what, what was your insight there yeah well you know the squirrels they uh, they were uh, it was a project that was kind of suggested to me by uh dick harrington who's this like legendary figure in canadian ice age paleontology from the canadian museum of nature and and he once like back in the 70s uh wrote a small in a paper that these arctic ground squirrels of the pleistocene they were like furry little botanists who ran around and collected plants <laughs> storing them underground for paleontologists to come along 20,000 years later to study. And, and that's exactly it. They provided this amazing record of the, the whole breadth of plants that were living on the landscape of the mammoth steppe. So uh, we had, you know, we'd find uh, flowers and preserve seeds and fruits of poppies and buttercups and, and um, grasses and mm. sedges and kind of that whole diversity of, uh, of plants that were living uh, under the feet of woolly mammoths 30,000 years ago in the Yukon. So they really provided this amazing paleoecological insight into what the plant communities were like. Wow, cool. Is there a strata within these middens that you can actually uh, say, well, this midden is, was occupied for 40 years? Uh, for example, in the Mojave Desert, yeah. there are middens from the Pleistocene. They're still there in the desert, and they're, they could yeah. be up to five, six feet thick. And they accumulate. Yeah, you know, I did a lot of reading and got in contact with those folks that were doing the pack rat midden work at the time. And I was just so influenced by it because I thought they were just amazing records of environmental change in the deserts of the of the Ice Age. And uh, But no, these these nests by Arctic ground squirrels are probably only used for one year. And I think oh. they abandoned them after a year. So, But the neat thing is that we started to find these uh, squirrel nests within stratigraphic association with volcanic ashes or tephra. Because within the permafrost sediments of the Yukon, we find all these different uh, volcanic ash beds that come from volcanoes uh, closer to where you are, Ray, up on the... Mm. On the on the uh, Aleutian Islands, and there's there's also some uh, volcanics on the Yukon Alaska border. So these uh, volcanoes are spitting out ash uh, hundreds of times throughout the ice age, and so we'd find these squirrel nests in association with ashes. So we had a deep record. We had 
uh, a record of squirrel caching that goes back hundreds of thousands. Is that coincidence that they're ab- amongst the ash? I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, these... Or you're using ash to date them. Yeah, we're using the ash. The, like, I, I've worked really closely with a group of geologists from the University of Alberta for a number of years who work on uh, Pleistocene volcanic ashes and volcanics. And uh, so, yeah, we have these, you know, we can chemically fingerprint these volcanic ash beds so we know exactly what they are, what vent they came from. And then using different dating techniques, we can put together ages. So, you know, and that's a thing for the ice age is if you, once you get past radiocarbon dating, you know, back about 40 or 50,000 years, it's really a tough game to come up with ages for things. So these volcanic ash beds providing stratigraphy has been really remarkable for, for understanding Beringia and, and the ice age and the Yukon. Can you tell us a little bit about the incredible fossil record that of the Yukon and Beringia. What's what's Beringia all about? Man? But also, uh, tell us about the Pleistocene. How long it is? When did it start? And, and and this is pretty much what you study, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, with with my background in in the Pleistocene and Quaternary sciences, I started in the paleontology program in two thousand six. And at the time, you know, I was really interested in all these. You know, I don't. I'm not really a paleontologist. I'm a paleo nerd. That's what I am. I'm a paleo nerd. Because I like paleo. I'm a paleo. I like paleoecology. I do paleo, all kinds of stuff, and it's all part of that package. And really trying to understand what the ancient ecosystems were like in the during the Pleistocene in, in Yukon, and the types of animals and plants that were here, and then that backdrop for those first people in North America. And we know that in in places like the Yukon. Um, you know, we generally put the base of the, the Pleistocene, the Ice Age, at about two and a half million, 2.6 million years old is kind of when we know the Pleistocene starts. And uh, in the Yukon, we see the evidence of the first uh, continental ice sheets. Uh, so there's some some stratigraphic sections in, in, in the interior of Yukon where you can see the first glacial till that overran the Yukon uh, two and a half, uh, 2.6 million years ago. Is that ago. what and you starts can... the Pleistocene? The first yeah, glacier you know, of the glaciation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you start looking at climate records of the late Cenozoic, you see a real uh, nosedive in temperature around two and a half million years ago. And then that's where you start to see the evidence for the continental ice sheets building up in North America, in Northern Europe. And then, the you know, from the, from the Arctic, the Laurentide ice sheet spreads across Canada down into the Northern United States. And then... Uh, in British Columbia and Alaska, we had the, the Cordilleran ice sheets, which were sort of out of phase with the other ice sheets. But yeah, around two and a half million years ago, they start to expand. And then that, 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 that ecosystem that's really characterized, you know, with the study of Beringia, once you have the ice sheets built up in North America, you get the, the depression in global sea levels. So ice building up on the lands ties up all that fresh water. So you get the dropping of sea levels around the world and the exposure of Beringia, the Bering Land Bridge uh, between Alaska and Siberia. And, you know, if, if we think of paleontology, you know, Beringia is such a huge concept. You can, you can apply the, the, the concept of Beringia going back to the late Cretaceous because we know dinosaurs. Right. You're saying it as though it's a place, right? It is, yeah. It is a, it is a place. It's a bygone place. <laughs> but it's it a place that it appears and disappears, or it's a place... Yes, yes. Absolutely. It is come and gone, as as uh, Grant was saying, since So the it's Cretaceous. this path, it's this link from Siberia to the North America that appears and disappears based on glaciation and interglaciation periods. And the level of the, the and sea the level. Sea level. And what's, yeah. ah. But what is, what is so incredible is that during the Ice Age, uh, there's this grass corridor... It's actually open 
It's not covered by ice. It's a vast, flat grassland. And actually, when you look at it, when I started doing the, the map of Alaska and the Yukon and Siberia, realizing how huge this area yeah, was, because the Bering Sea is basically pretty shallow. Absolutely. And it doesn't take much to drop it. Oh, you know, so, so places like the Pribilof so, so Islands. Yukon is in the path. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Because I always thought well, it was yeah. along the coast, like along Ketchikan. No, man. Oh, it oh, goes wait. way. Tell us. Tell us. So, Dr. So, Zazula, so please of, explain to us. You think of uh, easternmost Siberia, the Chukotka Peninsula, right? You know, it's right. only, what, 100 miles from, from, from the Seward Peninsula right. of Alaska. Yeah. It's really close. But like Ray was saying during the Pleistocene, those, the depression of sea level, I think the Chukchi and the Bering Shelves are only about 60 meters deep. So right. once yeah, you get below not. 60 meters, you start getting bare land exposed. So this uh, this 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 open landscape that connected Siberia uh, to Alaska, and it was not like we call it the Bering Land Bridge, but it's a terrible name because, it, like you said, it's a massive area. It's almost 1,500 kilometers north to south. So if you think of that right. area, it's a mass. It's a it's a subcontinent until until itself. So fly me the path if you're going from the uh, Bering Strait. Fly yep. me. You go across Alaska, right? Yeah. South of the Brooks Range, because those are big mountains yep. there. And then you go right over Old Crow, down to the Yukon, yep. right? Then yep. down uh, British Columbia, Saskatchewan? Yeah. No, we had glaciers in southern Yukon. So Whitehorse was covered by glaciers during the Pleistocene. So you have to go a little bit further north of Whitehorse to get into that area that was never covered by glaciers. And that's a real key concept of Beringia, because... Once you have that exposure of the Bering and uh, Chukchi seas, and you have that land bridge or that land mass exposed, that's re it, it remains ice-free because it's essentially so cold and so dry, there's no moisture in the interior. So all the moisture that's coming off the North Pacific from uh, into Alaska gets caught up in the coastal mountains, and we get snow buildup in the coastal mountains, glaciers in the coastal mountains, but there's not enough moisture to get into the interior. So if you're in Fairbanks 30,000 years ago in the middle of Alaska or, say, Dawson City in the middle of the Yukon 30,000 years ago, it is a very cold and very dry place. And it's really in a rain shadow or snow shadow of the, right. the coastal mountains of Alaska. And it's it's a vast grassland that stretches over into Siberia and into Russia. And there's actually this kind of crazy project called Pleistocene Park <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in Siberia. Do you where they're trying to actually bring back that ecosystem. And this ecosystem, this grassland, was basically bison, horse, and mammoth, predominant. Yeah, predominantly, right? yeah. Caribous, muskogs. And this Russian dude is trying to bring this back. Do you have an opinion on this <laughs> little project? pretty wild because when you think of the the mammoth step and this step we we use that term step it's like a the like step, it's a, yeah yeah it's like a you know that's an old world term for, yeah exactly it's like like it's an old world term for dry grasslands especially cold dry grasslands and you know it's such a it's such a remarkable difference if you think of the the boreal forest today you know you have uh spruce trees and muskeg and swamps and if you you know and that's what we get during interglacials like today present day interglaciations and warm periods but if you go in the cold periods it's so cold dry and those forests are replaced by dry dry grasslands and uh so what they're trying to do in northern siberia right now that it's this idea that 
you know, one of the big things that we don't have today in Alaskan Yukon are large-bodied megafaunal grazers. We don't have big grazing animals anymore. And there's this idea that, you know, animals like woolly mammoths, which probably consume hundreds of kilos of grass a day, and just their action on of eating and stomping and trampling the ground probably did a lot to dry out the substrates and uh, make the ground a little bit uh, more uh, drier. So grasses, so it's kind of like a feedback mechanism of right, grass, right, right. Of, uh, of herbivory leading to more grass growing and, 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 you know, and round and round feedback and round you loop. go. Feedback loop. Yeah, so that's what they're trying to recreate in northern Siberia right now at Pleistocene Park. So they have this stretch of, uh, of tundra that they've taken bison from from Alberta, from from Canada, from Wood Bison National Park. They've plopped them up there. They've got some old horses. They've got other, and they're they're trying to see whether by introducing these large grazing animals again back onto the landscape, whether they can slowly rebuild that mammoth steppe ecosystem. Because in their idea, it was really the loss of the megafauna grazers that created the 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 tundra that we have today. That's you know such a, a terrible. The tundra is not a good place if you're a large grazing animal. There's well, not a lot of food. I don't think a Pleistocene park is a good idea. What is it? Uh, life creates man, man creates dinosaur, dinosaur eats man. <laughs> right. Well, and they're trying to... to actually bring back the mammoths and yeah. introduce them. I'm all for Siberia, that. But... I'm all for that. I'd love to see a woolly uh... mammoth or a mastodon, Colombian <laughs> it's mammoth. Totally it's now, totally wild. Now, up there, but... yeah, go on, Ray. I was going to say, but the mind-blowing thing when I walked into and met you back in 2012 and I began to really be aware of uh, the um, enormous uh, 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 body of just thousands and thousands of bones coming out of the permafrost and you have a warehouse there that's <laughs> full of this stuff and the whole the whole concept of placer mining where they're basically hosing down the permafrost which has got to have a huge ecological impact, I'm sure. But yeah. but people don't really realize that with gold mining, and this happened, this started happening in the 1890s, 1880s. They are literally hosing down these uh, hillsides, and they're after the gold. But you know, the uh, other stuff was like, there's all this Pleistocene stuff yeah. coming out. There's mammoths galore, and I've been out there with some of these water cannons and <laughs> seen it up in Fairbanks. And within a day, you need a mammoth tusk. There's a mammoth tusk. You go down. Uh, so up in uh, the northern Yukon, there's tons of this going on, and you have a warehouse, and you are just collecting eight thousand bones a summer <laughs> that are. You know, you're collecting just along the river, but what's up with the placer mining and how many bones do you need, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a really interesting idea, concept. And like, I think it's amazing to think of these placer miners and they've been doing this since like about 1898, as you said. And they, they use that technology that they brought with them from the California gold rush, those big hydraulic cannons. And it's really a perfect mechanism to strip away permafrost. And, you know, I love seeing those iconic black and white photos from the back in the old days where they were out placer mining in 1898 and running across a mammoth tusk or a skull. And, you know, what it must have been just wild for them, just not thinking this would be right. ever, something they didn't care. They came up there they to get rich. around. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they, they came up to the Yukon to get rich off gold and have a good time at, you know, at the at the bars and the taverns and whatever they at, didn't they were the going to hotel the trump hotel yes uh, <laughs> oh man another that's a that's a story um yeah that's but, a segue size, but yeah of course the plast so the placer miners have been doing this for over 100 years and as soon as they started finding the these bones of ice age animals back in the old days 
scientists got interested, of course. So there was expeditions from the Smithsonian, the American Museum of Natural History, the Paris Museum. So they, there's this long history of this association between gold miners and pale, paleontologists. They're huge. Well, some of them are. Yeah, and like you know, like like Ray said, they're they're washing away the hillsides, and sometimes you know, complete woolly mammoth femurs come out of the hillsides or huge bones, but also small things like really the that permafrost and the and the placer mining providing that window into the ice age. Um, you know, we wouldn't know anything about Beringia if it wasn't for placer mining in in Alaska and Yukon. It's it's really and but also you know the some of the other work in 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 with First Nation communities as well. Right. Well, I have a question about that. So I, I watched your presentation and I saw the uh, old crow, uh, your campsites, and the yeah. amount of bones you find just in a day. It's yeah. absolutely amazing. And also there's uh, wild. Uh, fantastic photos and, and and video of the hydraulic mining. But yeah. What type of fish do you have in the old crow? It's salmon and there's grayling, right? Oh. And burbot. There's a whole ecosystem of Arctic fish, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the porcupine, see, up in old crow, which is on the banks of the porcupine river, which runs into the Yukon River. So it's connected to the Bering Sea through the Yukon River system. So there's, yeah, there's. There's trout, or there, there's salmon, there's there's pike, there's burbot, there's But the Old fish, Crow you know? is a river, right? Old Crow feeds into yeah. the porcupine, which feeds into the Yukon. Yeah. But what does the hydraulic mining runoff do to that ecosystem? Well, actually, most of the placer hydraulic mining happens near Dawson City. There isn't any placer mining near Old Crow. It's all oh. near the town of Dawson oh. City. And, um, and you know, it's that's actually, it's a, it's a good point to raise, because one of the things about placer miner that people see, they see the images of ripping hillsides uh, uh, you know apart with hydraulic hoses and machinery but it's a closed loop system so any water that they're using to hydraulic mine has to be recirculated settled and reused again so none of that runoff goes into the rivers oh, so it's a, they're okay. actually not discharging sediment which is actually okay. a really remarkable thing because that became a real concern a number of years ago. Like, does this mining affect fish habitats? And because it's mm. a closed loop system, um, there's actually some pretty remarkable remediation work that could be done in these mine sites after. And you can look at these valley bottoms and go, wow, they were mining here 100 years ago. Right. I, I can't see much evidence for it. So there was actually an effort to rebuild some of these like hills? Yeah, they have get... to. It's part of Yukon, like, you know, that's a, one of the difference between Yukon and Alaska is that. Uh, like there's still gold mining that goes on in Alaska, but not as much because it's because of regulations. There's a lot of environmental regulations on placer mining, and uh, I know in Alaska the only places you in can the Yukon there's 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 both, regulations in both in right. both places in right. Alaska you can really only gold mine placer mine on privately held land now, but in right. Yukon it's all done on public lands. So those lands, you can get a mining permit, and you have, part of that reclamation process is part of your permitting. Technically, the bones are yours then, right? You are you are a representative of the Yukon government, and the miners don't own the bones. Yeah. They are yours. You're, you're, I mean, you're, the governments. You're absolutely correct, yeah. So in the mid-1990s, the Yukon government worked with the indigenous governments in the Yukon, and they established modern-day treaties or land claims. And part of that process was to create legislation to protect uh, archaeological and 
paleontological remains in the Yukon. So we work like, so all the, the bones that are found out in the landscape or archaeological sites that are found in the landscape are all public resources. So they're either owned by the Yukon government or co-owned with the Yukon government and one of the indigenous governments. Because we have 14 different indigenous governments in Yukon that we kind of do this work in, in collaboration with. Wow. Yeah. So with all cool. the uh, mammoth tusks you find, uh, what does one beautifully curved uh mastodon tusk go for on the black market oh yeah grant grant <laughs> well they're usually lot. mammoth tusks yeah, and not mammoth. mastodons oh, okay. yeah. oh. even 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 though the store storefronts all say mastodon ivory and i tell them it's okay not wait, wait wait so wait, wait, wait well let's go back it's they're not mastodons they're 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 not Colombian mammoths. mammoths which are down in the south they're woolly mammoths right yeah, absolutely. They're woolly mammoths. May I interject that, yeah, there's mostly woolly mammoths, and mastodons do range into the far north because we had them in Alaska. Yeah. But they generally are more woodland creatures, and they are more rare. So right. mammoths were ideal for the grasslands. So anyways, Dr. So Zazino. how much can you get for one of them tusks, Grant? How much uh, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you own a Ferrari? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a bit of an industry, a commercial industry of mammoth ivory, and it's 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 an interesting thing because right now there's a lot of interest globally with uh, elephant ivory and just the whole issue with uh, with poaching of elephants in Africa to get at ivory and a lot of the carving that's actually done on the global market now is done with mammoth ivory instead of elephant ivory which is a good thing because we're not killing elephants yeah. anymore. So yeah, there's a lot of mammoth ivory that comes from Alaska and Yukon and Siberia that gets carved into you know whatever it may be, but. Yeah, they they it's expensive. Uh, ivory, you know, a tusk can cost you five, ten, twenty thousand dollars depending on the condition. And right, there's right. lots but of them out those there. Those carvings are done by First Nations people. Sometimes, right? yeah. Sometimes, you know, there's a, a bit of a closet industry, or what do you is that what you call it a, clo a closet industry? Here? I don't know. I you know what's real this sad? A small industry. Yeah. What's real sad is contemporary ivory. Right, we call it ivory, but it really represents the death of an yeah. individual elephant. Yeah, they are. It's essentially a fossil, you know, before an animal be got the chance to become a fossil. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, no. we find yeah, we find lots of mammoth, lots of mammoth tusks. And, and yeah, Ray mentioned a good, uh, good point is that we find tons of woolly mammoth material, mostly mostly woolly mammoth. We don't have Colombian mammoths up here. We had their their cousins, the northern cousins, which are a little bit smaller. But I would say like one, like out of every thousand woolly mammoth fossils we find, we find one mastodon. It's about the ratio, but a thousand to one. And we had uh, mastodons wow. were really common down in the southern, you know, eastern you part of the- what are you finding? Teeth? What's the most thing you're finding or everything? Teeth, postcranial bones, uh, tusks. Uh, it's very, very rare we find articulated skeletons because of this placer mining environment. And, and because most of these fossils are found in river gravels, so they're, they're animals that were probably living on hillsides and then they died and then got scavenged and or, you know, whatever the process, their bodies ended up in valley bottoms and preserved in permafrost uh, river gravels. So we never, you know, because of that high energy river environment, we almost never find complete uh, skeletons like right. you would in some places. But um, yeah, yeah, mammoths are but about you can a assemble them. You could. <laughs> you can assemble them out of the parts, but uh, the vast majority of what you're finding are, are bison, right? Is that, yeah. it's usually bison, priscus? Bison, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's stuffed bison? Yeah, we, you know, Dale Guthrie over in Alaska, he coined the term the mammoth step as the mm -hmm. kind of that term to describe the Ice Age ecosystem of Beringia. But I really think we should be calling it the bison step because in the last, you know, if, 
the first bison enter North America over the Bering Land Bridge about 150,000 years ago. And there's this movement of bison populations out of Asia into North America. And we know this because of some of the permafrost preserved bones we have from the Yukon and, and especially genetics and the ancient DNA we can pull from them. So we know the first bison enter about 150,000 years ago. And once they enter North America, they basically are like bullies and they take over the continent and they just become so plentiful. That's what blew my mind when I was with you. We were talking about this. The bison, we think of bison as this great American icon, but really they're kind of latecomers to North America. They pour into North America and they outcompete pretty much everything else and they shove the horses out of the way. Yeah. And the horses actually go extinct in North America because the bison hordes from Eurasia have replaced them. And you showed me. There were many species of horses in North America. They evolved in North America. You showed me the, the bones of the giant stilt-legged horse. Yeah. And horses, actually, as the bison enter, you can actually see them start kind of shrinking. The skeleton, they get smaller, and then they're gone. Is that kind of the way it plays out? Yeah, you know, yeah. So much of what we do in Beringia, we owe so much to Dale because he was such an amazing yeah, paleontologist. A, yeah. Dale Guthrie is a paleontologist who spent his career at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Yeah, uh, really and, cool guy. I've been lucky enough to hang out with him. Grant has worked with him. Yeah, and he, he's, you know, he's come up with so many big ideas and big concepts about Beringia, about the climate and the environment. And, and uh, he coined that term mammoth step. But um, yeah, and he also worked on the famous blue babe from from oh, uh, yes. Fairbanks, which is our probably the most well known mummified animal. Explain and, what that is. I know what it is, but tell our <laughs> tell our listeners what blue babe is. It's uh, Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's the most remarkable Ice Age specimen I think you could ever imagine. It's a complete carcass of a 40,000-year-old step bison that was found at a gold mine near Fairbanks in, the, I think, the early 1980s. And it's, it's the it's, 70s. It was actually in the 70s, I the believe. The 70s, yeah. And it's it's actually color blue, right? Yeah. And tell, tell us why right. that is. Well, a lot of times when we find fossils um, in the permafrost, they have this blue staining from a mineral called vivianite. And that vivianite forms on the surface of bones and other of other organic materials that are preserved in permafrost. And uh, so you get this really beautiful, bright blue color to the lot of the fossils. And, and Blue Babe, his skin was completely blue. So it was this blue, beautiful blue color. It had claw marks on it. Claw yeah, marks from and a lion. teeth marks on it from a lion. Yeah. Yeah, Amazing. it's really cool. And then what's cool is that they actually had the flesh on the beast. And, of course, Dale and a few of his buddies and his wife, they decided it was preserved so so well. They actually cooked some up. <laughs> and uh, they, 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 they made it into a stew. Bison steak. They did. This is this could be told now. Just a little portion. Yeah, of course. And I asked him, I asked Dale, what did it taste like? And he said, mud. Yeah. Mud, so, yeah. <laughs> Check, please. Okay, I've got a question about... Tons and tons of bones. So in your presentation, I saw that you were on the side of a cliff that was 100 feet tall. And it's this real steep slope of this gray strata that obviously the river has taken hundreds of thousands of years to carve through, right? Yeah. And the question is, when you look at that strata and, and all that, uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, muck? What is it called? Muck. Uh, Miner's muck. Los. Yeah. 
Less, but yeah. the lows, right? Yeah, lows, less, yeah. Less, yeah. less, less, less. Uh, uh, any more, any less, what? Any more or less? Less. <laughs> less. Yeah. Or less. Less as in L-O-E-S-S, correct? That's yeah. Correct, yes. So this muck, when you're standing at the river edge and you look up 100 feet, how many years is that 100 feet? Oh, yeah, and that's the thing is that we climb up and down those sections on the river. And, and I think that's, you know, it really goes back to my my training in sort of that kind of multi interdisciplinary earth science kind of ice age stuff that I did where, you know, my professors, when we when we're in field school, they set us out on these geological sections and, you know, dig out a trench, carve a trench and then do some stratigraphy. And I really love doing that kind of work. So in those sections on places like the Old Crow River, where there's 100 feet of sediments, once you start uh, picking away and scraping away at it, you see volcanic ash beds, you see uh, paleosols, so old soils, you see organic trash beds, um, you see, um, you know, all kinds of different stratigraphic changes. We see evidence of ancient lakes, so lacustrine, buried lacustrine units from old glacial lakes. So, yeah, you know, party, putting together the story. And, and I think that's what, you know, when I say I'm not just a paleo, paleontologist, paleo nerd, it's if you didn't do the stratigraphy, you had no idea where you were working in the stratigraphy or in time that paleontological record would be really, really difficult to decipher because there's so many in the unglaciated regions like Old Crow, the Old Crow Basin, that basin may have sediments at the base of it that go back to the Miocene. So when we find these fossils alongside the riverbeds, um, we have no idea how old they are because they're, they've been removed from their primary stratigraphic right. position. So, so that's why we like to climb up the cliffs and start looking in the section to see if we can find anything in situ in stratigraphic association with known beds. So, yeah, there's a lot of sediment and there's a lot of bones that come out of that. Like, like you said, thousands every summer, like at a, at a typical gold mine, like when we go to the gold mines in the summer and I have – my two assistants, Elizabeth Hall and Susan Hewitson, and they basically spend their whole summer out in the field driving around the back roads meeting gold miners. And every summer at the gold mines, we'll collect five, six, seven, eight thousand bones. Wow. You're getting all these bones, all these bones. And so it's bison, horse, man, bison, 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 bison. Oh my God, it's lion. Is that what you're excited about? Yeah. Or lions or short faced bear? Yeah. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Lions and tigers and bears. But these bones are not, you don't get them in the mud. They're pulled out, so you can't see where they came from. Well, they're blasted out. Right. Yeah, well, they, they come out. But do they really record little, their positions, kind of? You know, or you don't, it's oh, there's almost, too many of them. It's you don't almost cares. pointless because it's just like there they are right. in, the, in this, this display stuff. But, but not quite, what's, not what's, quite. Not quite. You know, All right, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. Some some of those sites, like in some of these valleys where gold miners are working, we have fairly good idea of how old those sediments are because they have volcanic ash beds. So if they're washing away hillside and we see volcanic ash bed, we're like, well, we know that those uh, fossils underneath it that are being found are at least, say, 100,000 or 200,000 years old. So we have a pretty good idea how old. And ash gives you precise dating. Well, they provide limiting ages. They give us an idea if it's middle or late Pleistocene. So when you when you have that, like, oh my God, it's a lion, a <laughs> lion bone. So yeah. do you like stop and like look for more lion right around there? Is there a chance that you can? Not normally, because you know when say we, we go to a gold mine for the day, say we collect five hundred bones, we'll collect four hundred and fifty of them will be bison, thirty of them will be horses, a bunch of mammoths, and then we'll have like say one lion, one short-faced bear, one camel, maybe one. 
mastodon wow. or one so if you think of natural sort of populations of animals if, you, if you're in the interior of alaska today you know how many how many carnivores are there for every herbivore you know there's hundreds oh, right. of thousands of caribou for every wolf so you know we, we think that you know we're getting a fairly good idea like and that's a total contrast to something like the la brea tar pits down california where all they have is carnivores and very few herbivores like this is a our ecosystems up here during the pleistocene there's tons of large mammal herbivore biomass mammoth horses and bison and then you know those 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 rare carnivores that are there feeding on them well it's like the african savanna yeah exactly and yeah so we we get these thousands of bones and but we're really there for the rare ones right so you're going to keep the lions you're going to keep the arctotus you don't need five thousand more more bison well we collect it all we do collect it all you do yeah so every, that's in your warehouse we 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 archive everything and we do wow. that because legally we're required to but you know what you know sometimes like you we could be going through those bison bones and go huh you know we we see evidence for things like arthritic growths on on foot bones like so then you start to you can start to do some biology like what percentage of these bison are actually showing pathologies what percentage of these bison are or male or female or young or old. So when you have huge numbers to work with, you can actually start to do some population biology, right? Yeah, I guess I can see that. But it's those rare things, the rare things that get me excited. <laughs> when you're out there collecting in these, what do you have, six, seven weeks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. about that, a couple um, months. And I want to ask about mosquitoes because I've seen clouds <laughs> so thick. I've seen uh, up in, a, um, in the Anchorage uh, drainage out there, I've seen clouds. Are there predators out there? Are there grizzlies that you could be afraid of? Or, or oh, grizzly is Ursus arctos horribilis. That's your classic yeah. grizzly bear. Not to be confused with the uh, Kodiak bear, which is the... Well, it's a brown bear as yeah, well. But yeah, but they're, they're much bigger than the, the mainland grizzlies. It's a coastal. Yeah, so, the coastal bears yeah, are bigger. Yeah, so this uh, Pleistocene short-faced bear, what is he called and how much bigger is he compared to a, a massive grizzly? Yeah. Yeah, the big, the giant short-faced bear. Yeah, so the Latin name for the short-faced bear is Arctotus simus. And um, it's an interesting bear because it's a new world bear. So its closest living relatives are the spectacled bears of South America, which That's is pretty a, cool, yeah. super interesting because Ooh. all reconstructions of giant short-faced bears and, 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 and their size is, is critical. They're about one and a half times the size of a of a Alaskan brown bear. So these are massive, you know. If they got up in their hind limbs, they're 14 feet tall. So, you know, amazing. Doing one of these, they're big. They're big animals, but Well, how much uh, bigger were the bison compared to the ones that we have today? Not uh, not that much bigger. Their body but size But this is a it's a long-legged bear too, like oh, yeah. more like a horse. Yeah, I've seen That's the a neat pictures. thing about the short Yeah, the short-faced bear, which is, you know, all so there's a, a number of really interesting pieces of information about them and one of them is that they've done some stable isotope uh, sort of dietary work. So looking at the bone chemistry, yeah. showing that they're completely carnivorous. There's almost no evidence of any yeah. kind of omnivory. So, wow. you know, our brown bears in the Yukon today, you always see them in the ditch grazing on weeds. But these bears during the Pleistocene were completely carnivorous. Yet their closest living relative is completely herbivorous, which is weird. Wow. And then the other part about giant shore-faced bears during the Ice Age is that, like Ray said, they have these really long, like, lanky limbs. So they're an animal that has this massive torso, these sp spindly long, long limbs. So they couldn't run. Well, they couldn't run. Yeah, that's so all sort of biomechanical work that's been done on them shows they could probably, they were probably a good long distance kind of pursuit. They could probably, you know, run uh gate along the the mammoth step walk around for long long distances but they could never 
run at quick speeds or turn at quick speeds. Really? The key thing about being a predator, like a like a lion or a cat, is that they have to be able to turn on a dime to be able to pursue prey. So if you ever seen like a cheetah hunting something on right. a savanna, they're like turning and twisting and turning all the time. And only cats do that really well. But the thing is with bears, um, all the reconstructions of a giant short-faced bear show that if they tried to turn while running at top speed, their wrists and ankles would just just shatter. Snap. They didn't. They didn't have the the. So the they went for the old and the young and the weak. No, no. Here, what's the other alternative? Is they're scavengers. So right. They have this big giant short face. They have a giant nose. This giant nasal opening to you know, sniff carcasses on the steps. Oh. Right. So yeah, they were they were scavengers. They were they could smell rotting meat. They could smell carcasses, and then do their thing but surely they were an opportunist if they could yeah. take the yeah, prey down but yeah. i i keep imagining they could take yeah. down a mammoth man you know stand up to a mammoth okay so what mummies have you found there's babe <laughs> right the ox babe, yeah. blue babe and we'll blue talk babe, about blue. the beautifully freeze-dried pup the wolf pup oh yes yeah but what other um flesh oh horses the horse skin i saw that yeah there's the Yukon horse they found. Yeah. Have you preserved. found any predators? Um, other than wolf pup? Um, no. You know, that's the thing Why? about mummified stuff. I, I'm so jealous. Like, every time you turn on the news from Siberia, oh, yeah, another woolly mammoth. Oh, another lion found in the permafrost, complete with hair and skin. But um, we just don't find so much of that stuff in North America. And it, it's not because we, we also have permafrost. So we do find mummified materials once in a while. But I You have to try harder, Grant. <laughs> you know, I'm just, maybe I'm just lazy. Yeah. The, the government should hire a better, a better paleontologist. I think the day they find a perfectly preserved Arctotus would be so cool, oh. you know, to find that short-faced bear. But tell us about your wolf pup. Oh. Uh, Jure, right? Jure, Jure, the, Jure the wolf pup, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, like I said, we don't find too many mummified specimens or animals here. And I think that has something to do with, like, the, the topography is a little different. It's a little more rolling terrain. I don't think there's that kind of situation like they have in Siberia where animals are drinking water and in the summer and fall into a pond and then get frozen. I, you know, that probably what, or they get mired in the muck, but yeah, the, our wolf pup, it was found in 2016. And, um, when the gold miner found it, he was like, yeah, my, geez, you know, he's, he's using his big hydraulic cannon water hose and he saw something pop out of the hillside that looked a little bit different. And like I said, these are miners that have been doing this for, he, I think he's a fourth generation miner and he's a young guy and, He's seen his share of mammoth bones and bison horns. and But when Every he saw day, this, uh, saw this, he's like, something's different. It looked like a piece of like leather or something. He couldn't quite figure it out. It's so a picture he, of him holding it in a gold pan or, or yeah, a dinner exactly. plate or something. So, yeah, he went and picked it up and he was like, wow, this looks like an old dead dog. He thought it was probably an 1898 gold rush dog that had died and <laughs> fell in a mining shaft. So. You know, we uh, weren't quite sure, too. So we, the first thing we did is we cut off a, a little piece of broken skin, sent it off for a radiocarbon date, and that told us it was older than 50,000 years old. So we knew it was pretty spectacular then. And and uh, we sent it away for a little while to Ottawa. At the, there was a conservation outfit there with, that works with Canadian museums to clean it up and prepare it and clean off all the dirt and mud from it. And once we got it back and... We, we were able to do some genetic studies on it, some stable isotope work what to discover. What was that day it's... like when you opened the box and the beautiful oh. red hair it looked like it had been shampooed? Oh my gosh! Yeah, like it's it's just remarkable. And that's the thing is, um, what 
when this was discovered, one of the first things we did is we reached out to the local First Nation in Dawson City, the Trondic Wichin people. And because, you know, they're, they work with us all the time in terms of the, the fossils. And when they saw this, it was like it kind of it was like a game changer for the community, because for a lot of people trying to connect with like ancient lions or ancient mammoths, those are kind of abstract. But for right. the people of the Yukon and Alaska, a lot of people like a lot of Yukon First Nation communities, they have clan systems based on different animals. And the people of the Trondic Wichin in Dawson City, they either identify as a wolf clan person or a crow clan person. So, you know, the fact that they found that this, this wolf was found from the Ice Age and it just has, you know, it's skin, hair, face, everything. This wouldn't just be really... a dire wolf like they have in La Brea. Is it the same? <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is just a different animal. Canis Articus? Uh, Canis Lupus. Oh, Canis yeah. Lupus. That's the gray oh, wolf. Yeah. Oh, it is a gray wolf. So it's not. It's yeah. nothing prehistoric. It is. Yeah. So we know gray wolf is sixty thousand years old. Sixty thousand years old. Yeah, they have Canis lupus today. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's, We're still here. It's a survivor, right? So it's a really neat example, especially for the indigenous folks, as you know, they strongly identify with this animal as wow. not a. Uh, it's not a fossil to them. It's one of their ancestors. They wow. see it as one of their people or one of the that's brought to that was sort of unearthed from the permafrost to teach us lessons. And so when they when so that idea that the gray wolf was the survivor of the Ice Age has become a real powerful symbol to people in the Yukon now, because we know that those gray wolves are they came to North America from from Beringia over Beringia through Beringia from Siberia and uh, they populated North America. Uh, and uh, they're still with us today. They're one of, you know, that's one of those questions about the end of the Ice Age. We lost giant short-faced bears. We lost lions. We lost all these other animals, but wolves survived. And, and I think for a lot of indigenous people, that's a really kind of powerful idea because they survived as well. And they're still yeah. here with us today. And so that con continuity of culture and the land and the, the animals, I think is a really cool thing. What was your last meal? You were able to figure out what it had been eating. Yeah, that was a that was a great uh, little piece of research because you know a lot of times with mummies people want to know well what did this animal eat and uh, with this one it was so like it a lot of the Siberian mummies are very fleshy but this one is very dry it's it's got the consistency of a dried piece of leather you know it's 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 really frozen like freeze dried it's it's desiccated so there's no way we could do an autopsy on it without destroying it we couldn't cut it open and start looking at stomach so um i worked with a, a colleague of mine named matt wooler at the university of alaska fairbanks and he runs a stable isotope lab and he did some uh, amino acid specific uh, chemistry isotope chemistry on some of the different tissues and discovered that its last meal had to have been aquatic. It was eating aquatic resources, which is most likely salmon. So, wow. so that's really neat. So there was salmon coming up the Yukon River from the Bering Sea during the Ice Age, got into the Klondike River. And, and, I, and it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. So we kind of pictured this little wolf pup out with its mama hunting salmon. Because if you think during the Ice Age, these are wolves competing with lions and scimitar cats and all these other huge carnivores. So they had to find a different way to live. They couldn't do... The same thing that wolves do all the time. So opportunistically, yeah, they could. They were hunting, hunting fish, just like coastal wolves do today. He craw right, crawled yeah. into his den, fell asleep, and then a, a woolly mammoth stepped on the <laughs> den. No, <laughs> trampled him. 
But yeah, we we have the wolf pup. We also a few weeks before the wolf pup, we found a partial caribou mummy. So that and that was found wow. and that was found by a gold miner as well. And it was found right below a volcanic ash that we know is eighty thousand years old. Wow. So we have a an eighty thousand year old permafrost preserved caribou, which we haven't studied at all. It's still you waiting. Have a great there. symbiotic relationship with these gold <laughs> miners. Yeah. Is the wolf pup on display or in your collection or what? It is, is, yeah. So all so the the mummified materials that we found, uh like the wolf pup and the the caribou are now on display alongside that that horse skin you mentioned. So we have also a thirty thousand year old skin of a horse that has a tail and and mane and and, you know, skin and hair. So I wanna clarify. Uh Azure, the the wolf pup is on display at the Beringia Center. Yes, yeah, Jure, our mummified wolf, and the caribou and the horse are all dis- on display at the Yukon Bringe Interpretive Center here in Whitehorse. And yeah, it's it's one of the few places, you know, you can go to Fairbanks. Uh, the Museum of North has some mummified material on display. There's a part of a mammoth on display there. And, and, and of course, a blue, a blue babe. babe, of course. So if, you, if you're a person that's into Ice Age mummified animals, uh, make the road up the Alaska Highway through Whitehorse into Fairbanks. Couple of quick questions. Uh, Beringian lions, the DNA analysis shows that they are European in origin. There's also been some conjecture over the years that uh, the American lion was actually a jaguar. Yeah. What do you think about that? Or You have done some recent DNA work on these creatures. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things about uh, the permafrost preservation of the fossils that we have, uh, it really, twenty. I think we can go back about 25 years when the, some of the first ancient genetic work started coming out and you know, starting to use permafrost preserved animals. And really, that's one of the big driving focus of our program is, is ancient DNA, because we find like thousands of bones and, and you can start to do population genetics now mm. on some of these animals. But with lions specifically, there was a really good study done about 10 years ago on Ice Age lions showing that the that there was a movement of lions from Asia uh, across the Bering Land Bridge into North America. And then with the advance of glaciers during the Pleistocene, um, there was a separation between the lions living in Beringia, the ones in Alaska and Yukon, with those in the south, the American lions. So, So, and that happens with a lot of the species is because a lot of the animals that are moving into North America from Asia, they cross the Bering Land Bridge, and then some of the population stays north in Alaska and Yukon. Some of it makes its way south, and then glaciers grew, splitting those populations. So we see that that happening with you know bison. We can tell genetically a northern bison from a southern bison just based wow. on its DNA. We can do that with horses. We can do that with lions. So yeah, with uh, so we know that there's a separation between Beringian lions and North American lions because of the growth of the ice sheet. So there's enough genetic separation. We can see that. Uh, you can see it morphologically. The the lions uh, in uh, down in the United States are a lot bigger. But yeah, there was some discussion early on about those being North American jaguars in some area. But genetically, it's been determined that the North American lion is in fact a lion. <sighs> So the Beringian lion and the American lion are different species or different variations in the same species? Yeah. Or yet to be determined? You know, I'm I'm a lumper myself. You know, the problem, one okay. of the problems in, in North American Ice Age paleontology is that anyone who was studying anything back in the past wanted to put their own name on it. So they were calling... We, you know, there's a hundred species of Ice Age horses in North America, which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's silly. But we know yeah. genetically they're probably all the same horse 
or one or two different real species. So I think that's one okay. of the things that's happening. And I, and I hope that the dinosaur paleontologists start to clue in on some of this because <laughs> they want to morphologically split everything. Oh, new hor- new uh, frill on a center centrosaurian dinosaur. Let's put a new. Uh, we've we've had some of those discussions. Yeah, yeah but, but I like to think that the uh, Beringian lion was white. You know, for the Simba. Oh, man. <laughs> Ooh, cool. wouldn't that be nice? Like a like a I think so. Siberian oh, yeah. tiger. Yeah. Oh. So here's here's my last question before the last last question. <laughs> so uh, you have never found we, there has never been a woolly rhinoceros found in North America, uh, right? No, they stop in Siberia. They're all over Siberia. They're such a cool animal. Why? why come on, you got to find one, man. What, what's the deal? I know. I I, I always. I always say that if I find a woolly rhinoceros bone, I'm I'm just going to retire. That's like that's so the there's end. No okay. evidence. There's no evidence. There's no evidence of them in North America. There's no. So woolly rhinoceros are this spectacular animal. But there were um, rhinos, though. Well, not during the Before. Pleistocene. Yeah, not during yeah. the Ice Age. So we had Ice Age rhinos over in Asia, the woolly rhinoceros, and they were one of the major animals on the mammoth steppe of Siberia, and they ranged all the way to the coast of Chukotka in Siberia. So they had to have. They had to so close. They got so close. They had to have walked a few more feet and ended up in the in Beringia. And I, a few, you know, and here's the thing: like, there's no reason ecologically why they couldn't have crossed the Bering Land Bridge because they were living alongside like animals like saiga antelope, which we had in North America and Beringia as well. This like these these animals that live in these cold, dry steppe environments. But we just don't have any woolly rhinos here, so. I think they might be here. I think they might be in Alaska. I, we just have to find them. And, and it, you know, and the, it gives me faith because even after hundreds of years of doing Ice Age paleontology in Alaska and Yukon, we're still finding new species. And in fact, uh, we're going to be reporting a new species of cat from the Ice Age of, of Yukon um, in, a, in a few months in a publication. And, and you know, that's if we ask these questions, well, why do we go collect thousands of bones? Because in every couple thousand bones, you might find a new species or might, you know, it's like if you're a dinosaur person and you're working in southern Alberta, you're going to be collecting uh, duckbill dinosaurs you know, you can fill trucks full of hadrosaur city. Yeah, another hadrosaur. But every once in a while, you find something. Whoa! And that's what right. we're still in it for, right. is because we, you know, even with those millions of bison bones, you can still do some pretty interesting genetic studies and all. You know, there's all kinds of population level stuff. But there are still new species being found, so don't rule out woolly rhino- rhinoceros. I th- okay. okay, we might find them. And I'll be, you. You know what? I will call you first, Ray. You're the <laughs> you will you're the, you're, be a paleo nerd exclusive. I will call you first if I find that woolly rhinoceros. All right, and then I'll call Dave. Yeah, yeah okay, that's fine. <laughs> then we'll call. Then we'll call the news. You actually found a hyena once. Yeah, no, it wasn't you. Someone found a hyena. Did yeah, you find it? No, I didn't find it. Those were and that's the thing is like I said about the rare you know new North species. American hyena. Yeah, yeah. There was one species. How similar to the African? Ooh, ah, uh, well. We we suspect that they were also you know big scavengers. They got massive nasty teeth. Massive jaws. So it, it's a species called uh, Chasmoporthetes. So it was the only species of hyena to, to make it into the New World. And and before finding these teeth, so and these are teeth that were found on the banks of the Old Crow River in the 1970s, and they were squirreled away at the Museum of Nature. And there were some notes written on the specimen cards, like we're not sure what these are. They might be hyena, and. Uh, <laughs> I was at the museum in Ottawa maybe ten years ago, and I and I and I saw those and I thought, huh, 
well, I don't know anything about hyenas, but I know some people that do. So I called Jack Zhang from who was uh, in Buffalo at the time. And he said, you got to come check out these teeth. Cause I think they're, you know, people think they might be hyenas. And, and so, yeah, like there's been over wow. 50,000 bones cataloged from the old Crow river. And two of them, two out of 50,000 fossils are hyenas. So what's the ratio on that? Yeah. So that, you know, that tells me that there's species out there still yet to be discovered and identified that will, you know, fill out that whole, you know, story of Beringia and the ancient animals. So Grant, this is maybe an obvious question for a guy who dreams so much about the Pleistocene, but if you could time travel back to any time period and, you know, you could do this, what time period would you go to in the prehistoric past and what would you want to see? For me, you know, going back to the first part of our conversation and my my origins as an archaeologist who got fascinated with the, the story of the first peopling of North America, I would love to be there standing in the Seward Peninsula with that exposed bearing land bridge and seeing that first family of people walking from Siberia, following herds of animals and somehow crossing that, that, that boundary and eventually and making their way into North America. I would have loved to be there seeing those people living, say, I don't know, when did the first people come to North America, Ray? 15,000 years ago? Archaeologists argue about this all the time. They're always oh, fighting about this topic. So let's say 20,000 years 20, ago. 20,000. I, I say 20,000. Yeah, I think that's a good number. We'll say 20. I want to be standing in western Alaska 20,000 years ago when the first people are crossing the Bering Land Bridge. I want, to, I want, to, I want them to be, to be like in a, in a mammoth bone house or something like that. <laughs> we don't know what they were living in. But they knew they were connected to people with those types of technologies in the old world. So, you know, to be living in Alaska with lions and short-faced bears and mammoths and horses and trying to do that in a continent where you're the first people to be there and this in this ecosystem is changing because of environmental change, the warming up at the end of the ice age. Um, it must have been an amazing time to be on this continent and seeing all the because we know that those changes happen really rapidly with the end of the ice age, extinctions, so many animals going extinct, and they were going extinct in front of the people, the first people of the, of the Americas. And I, it must have been an amazing time to be on this continent. It must be awesome studying the Pleistocene because you actually have one foot touching the frozen soils and you can get a piece of fur. You can get a bone that's not hardened into rock. It's been frozen, so it almost has some of that bone-like material. So it's almost as though you're touching the past. So You're so much closer to the past than, let's say, a paleontologist who is studying dinosaur bones from 65 million years ago. It's almost kind of like being a wildlife ecologist here with a little bit more time depth. Because, you know, <laughs> for me, I'm really fascinated in into understanding how the modern world came to be over these timescales, right? Because in the in the north today, and, and I think the other part of it is the connection to megafauna. Because, you know, if you're in Alaska and Yukon, you know, you see moose, you see caribou, you see bears, you know, that's kind of normal. You see lynx. So that connection to megafauna and the people here are so connected to those animals today. Like whether you're an indigenous person or you're a non-indigenous person in the north, you have a relationship with big animals. And I love the study of the Pleistocene really brings that time depth back, you know, because these are people, you know, especially indigenous people that are hunting animals today and, 
and living off the land that only 15,000 years ago, their ancestors were doing very similar things in a very different environment in a, with a very different set of animals to live with. And I love for me, like kind of bridging those kind of worlds of ecology and wildlife biology and paleontology, because it's really kind of piecing together the last stages of how the, the modern North came to be as an environment. And the, the paleontological record of the Pleistocene provides that, 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 that bit of history of how, how we got here. It's brilliant. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, I, ju I just think what, what's it like to imagine there really is no Northern vast grasslands anymore. Right. No, I mean, not that's at all. the whole ecosystem is gone. Yeah. You know, there's, there's places in Southern Yukon now, um, especially on like South facing slopes and hill, South facing hills and, other really dry areas. Like if you drive the Elkan Highway around Kluwani Lake, Kluwani National Park uh, on the way to Alaska, there's some beautiful south-facing grassy ecosystems there where uh, where there's bison living today because in the 1970s, uh, they transplanted mm. some bison into the Yukon again because so those 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 herds of bison that crossed the Bering Land Bridge 150,000 years ago, they continued in Yukon until about 400 years ago. We had native bison here until very, very recently. And then even some of the First Nation elders talk about they knew like their grandparents had stories about when they were children that their grandparents were hunting bison in the Yukon. But we know that they were wiped out at some point before 1850. So we, but when they reintroduced populations of bison, we don't know. Yeah, we don't actually don't know what what wiped them out because there probably wasn't very much intense. How can it not pressure. be us humans? We we seem to have reduced our planet by half of its species <laughs> today. Yeah, but you know, eighteen doing a good job. Man. We're 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 you know, eighteen fifty. We're you know there. The, the Hudson's Bay Company didn't get to the Yukon until 1848. And by the time the Hudson's Bay Company fur traders showed up in the Yukon, there was no bison left. So they got here before, you know, the, the hordes of white people showed up. So I'm not sure what killed them off, but they're doing really well today. So the reintroduced herd that was brought back in the 1970s started off at like 50 animals. Now there's over 1,000 bison living in southern Yukon. So you know, there's those remnants of the, that mammoth steppe grassland and, and where are those remnants of those grassland habitats still exist. You know, we have bison living on them. We have free ranging horses in the Yukon now, like right. old horses, horses that got away from outfitters back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. They're living on their own. They're living in these grassy meadows. So they're kind of these little hints of the mammoth steppe, not, you know, similar to what Buddy's trying to do in northern Siberia with the Pleistocene Park. But right. yeah, we have horses and bison roaming southern yukon now free just put a mammoth there get a mammoth <laughs> we, we got to wrap this up i have one last question uh, and um i don't know if you noticed but uh we've got 50 mile an hour winds here and uh, i haven't heard it yeah no. um outside my window is one of those bamboo wind chimes damn it oh yeah it's okay going crazy so um climate change is upon us global heating and uh you know down here in california we're seeing wildfires the average person in, in Western societies, it doesn't affect them daily. It affects them seasonally. And climate change is easy to see in a generational point of view, but not month to month. So yeah. that's why people, th th there's a bias about it. People don't really feel it. So what have you witnessed in your decades of, of study that you can tell us down here? What have you seen? What, what warnings can you tell us that you've seen? So 
that they, I'm really, I'm just making this up as I go along here. <laughs> what can what can you extrapolate from the Pleistocene to the present day that the the huge changes that you see in the fossil record? Thank you, to Ray. Our world. <laughs> Thank you. Well. <laughs> You know, one of the things uh, we could talk about with climate change is that, you know, one of my real areas of interest is interglaciation, so warm periods of the Ice Age. And the last time we had an interglaciation was about 150,000 years ago, and the the climate was warm like it is today. We had the boreal forest in Alaska and Yukon, but the difference is we had giant ground sloths and mastodons and camels and six-foot-tall beavers. So that's what interglaciations were like in the past in the Yukon. And if we look at past interglaciations, um, like the last one, we know the boreal forest extended all the way to the Arctic coast. So foreseeably, in the next couple decades, we can foreseeably see the, the boreal forest further expanding northward. And there's been some amazing examples of, uh, of some of the ecological studies showing like on the north slope of Alaska and Yukon, where it was tundra before is now shrubs. And where it was shrubs is now a forest. So even in the last couple of decades, the shrubification of the tundra has become a big issue. But even, you know, if we want to think about in climate change, some of the best evidence for climate change comes from the indigenous communities. So if you talk to people in Old Crow who have been hunting caribou for 10,000 years, they could set their clocks to caribou migration before. They knew exactly when those those caribou were going to be in a certain place in the landscape, but now they can't because with warming climates, the caribou are doing very strange things. They're not moving in the same predictable patterns that they used to, and they and that's a problem because it feeds their communities. It's a huge part of their identity, so they can't go out caribou hunting because the climate has changed. That totally changes who they are as a people, and it's also there's a lot of safety issues with climate change because. A lot of indigenous people and a lot of Yukoners who use snowmobiles, you know, they're out on the land using ATVs, snowmobiles, hiking, snowshoeing. There's places that you could reliably cross rivers before that nobody will cross anymore because they know that it's just not safe anymore. It's, it's like, what is it, January 19th today? And we haven't had a single day below minus 25 degrees Celsius. So, yeah, it's January 19th and we haven't had a properly cold day all winter when I moved here in 2006, you know, you could reliably count on two, three weeks of minus 40 degrees where, you know, minus 40 is when you're, you don't start your vehicles. It's, yeah. it's, it's cool. You got to plug them in at night. Oh, now it's like, you know, animals are doing weird things. Trappers are having a difficult time because animal movement patterns have changed. Right. Like the safety concerns about movement on the landscape. So, you know, these sort of anecdotes, you know, they, you know, you could call them anecdotal evidence of climate change. But when they have effect on people's lives, you know, just like wildfires are affecting Californians, the warmth of the, and the grow and the warming up of the tundra, the shrubification of the tundra, the the warming and the changing of patterns has really messed up people's lives here. Right. We'll leave it on, on a that, we'll leave it on a on a good positive note. Well, no, no, we have to be scared. We have to understand the effects of this so that we can think about it and do something. Look. Awareness yeah. brings change. Yeah, and the other thing that's happening and the other lesson we've learned about the from the Pleistocene is that during past interglaciations, animals from the south moved north. So ground sloths, mastodons, which are all animals centered in the south, moved north. And that's happening again today. So we have animals moving into the Yukon, like uh, white-tailed deer, mule deer. Skunks. They've only... 
skunks, yep. cougars. Those are all yep. recent migrants from climate change. Wow. So who's who knows who, who what's going to come next? I don't know. <laughs> Jaguars. <Yeah>. Jaguars. <laughs> Hey, Grant, that has been uh, just lots of fun talking to you. Thank you so much for joining Paleo Nerds and uh, putting up with Dave and I, peppering you with questions. There's so much more we could talk about, but uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime. But thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you. I hope my stories weren't too rambling. You know, as my no, hair gets grayer, great. like you guys, as your hair gets grayer, your stories get longer, don't they? Hair? What's hair? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. What's that? <laughs> well, thanks, man. It's yeah, been great you. talking. Yeah, thanks. this is really good. It's a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. That was great. <laughs> Pleistocene, man. We went back in time, not not way back in time, but uh, really interesting stuff. And it was great to reconnect with Grant. And I and I told you 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 would enjoy his uh, his banter, his his interactions with us. Yeah. Well, you know the the woolly mammoth is my spirit animal because of the La Brea tar pits. I loved elephants as a kid from the La Brea tar pits. I drew them all the time that was my earliest drawings was mammoths but uh if i can nerd out on you dave i have to do this those are colombian mammoths that you were imprinting on down there and woolly mammoths are really only found up here in the great north the great okay you know? i stand corrected yeah well you sit correct <laughs> but it's right weird because but... as kids somehow we called them woolly mammoths and well you know, and actually, that's one of the things that Grant was bringing up is that, you know, it's where do these species begin and end? There's these northern groups. And I think the DNA work actually may prove that Colombian mammoths and woolly mammoths are basically variations in the same species, perhaps. But, right. but the far northern one, we know. Well, they had hair. We they had know a lot more they hair. were covered with hair yeah. because they've been preserved in the permafrost. And these you could actually buy woolly mammoth hair on the market legally. What? Yeah. What do you mean? You can make it actually. I have a friend who's got he's got this crazy idea that he's going to make a two. Wait, there's so much. He's going to make a toupee out of woolly mammoth hair. Wait, 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 wait. There's so much. You mean fossil woolly mammoth hair from frozen tundra that you can actually buy it? You could go to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show and buy a bushel of woolly mammoth hair and have it. A bushel? Well, I don't know. There's little packets. Come on. Okay, that sounds more like packets, and he's going to actually make a toupee. Uh, I'm letting the cat out of the bag, but anyways, yeah, so woolly mammoths. um... Okay, I jumped down this rabbit hole, and I found out that on eBay, you can buy a gram of woolly mammoth hair for about $40. Now, I don't know if it's real. I don't know how you prove it. Here's another item. Genuine skin of the woolly mammoth from Yakutia, permafrost, Russia, for sale $2,975 $2,975 plus 50 bucks shipping. Who would have thought? You know what's crazy about woolly mammoths is, I don't know if they were North American, but the evolution of the American elephant is the weirdest looking. There was these shovel tuskers, which these oh, yeah. giant bottom lip kind of spoon-like And Belladon, shovel tuskers, Platybelladon and Amibelladon. Let me ask you this. Yeah. What living elephant is closer to a mammoth? The Indian elephant? Because there's really only three species of elephants left. The Indian elephant, and there's two species of African African. elephants. There's the bush one and the forest uh, uh, elephant. They actually found out they're different species. But uh, uh, which elephant is a mammoth closer to genetically? The Indian elephant or the uh, African elephants? 
I'm just going to say the Indian elephant because I don't know. If I just yeah, the Indian elephant. Okay, because, there you go. The African... It's the surprising one because you think African elephant, cute, no. larger tusks, bigger. No, but they always portray the mammoths with small ears, and the Indian. That's how you tell the difference between the Indian and the African. Is the African have massive ears, and the Indian have small ears. Right, but that's something that wouldn't necessarily preserve in the fossil record. But of course, it does because they are mummies. Because they, found. they have them. They have yeah. them. Duh. All right. So there you, there go. you go. Hey, David. <laughs> Another great episode. Well done, sir. You got it. Yeah, it was fun, yeah. man. Yeah, And uh, we do go on, and uh, good luck uh, editing all the good stuff in there. <laughs> when do we get to talk to the trilobite people? You and I need to talk about who we want on. I got some pretty cool ideas there. I love trilobites. I want to talk, oh, because they, what were they, 300 million years? Uh, they were on the planet for almost 300 million years, yeah. Yeah, Something like a that. long time. Long yeah, time. And I got one on my arm. I showed it That's off. That's right. Ray and Grant compared paleo tattoos during our interview, so check it out on paleonerds.com to see those sordid screenshots. You have yeah, one of Okay, I gotta go. I'll talk to you later. Thank you, Ray. Over and out. Signing off from the most amazingly windy, windy, windy Santa Ana condition here in Southern California, Ojai, the city of. I am signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, where... Curiously enough, the, the sun is out, but it's raining simultaneously, so that means there's got to be a rainbow rainbows. out there, man. Rainbow. I'm going to go oh, look for I it. just love look at the rainbow. It's so beautiful. I'm going to go look. Rainbow. I hope I find a double rainbow, David. What will that mean? I don't know. So see you later, dude. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Paleo Nerds.